Hello, everybody, and welcome to... Oh, goodness, I can't believe it's already episode 15 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And a friendly reminder to all of you, we've been doing pretty well, I think, thus far over the course of the first... I can't believe it's already four months into 2021, give or take. Uh, here we are in early April. Be sure, once again, if you have not already, to follow us on all of the various platforms that we are on. Again, we put more of an emphasis on alternative social media rather than regular social media. We are on Facebook and on YouTube at The Right Take, but be sure to follow us on the major alternative websites. Gab, if you are on Gab, and Minds. Give us a like and a follow on each of those platforms as well, as well as the video sharing alternative websites, the YouTube alternatives, as it were, BitChute and Rumble. We are also available on pretty much every major podcast platform you can think of. Google Podcasts, Amazon Music slash Audible, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And of course, all of our content can be found at our website, righttakepodcast.com. Righttakepodcast.com. So I wanted to start this episode off with a um, an important announcement, by the way. Uh, you guys all know me. I'm, I'm a very loyal Trump supporter, ride and die supporter of President Trump, who the, I believe will be the 47th president, God willing, come 2024, assuming there is no more election fraud. But um, after today, I don't know. I, I, I like to think, you know what, Jacob? I, I think I've decided it after today, after this news. I, I'm, I'm riding with Biden, man. I am officially, I support President Joe Biden, at the senile old man that he is, solely on the basis of this headline from Breitbart. <clears throat> Quote, report, Joe Biden's DHS considers resuming border wall construction. <laughs> An exclusive report from Washington Times reporter Stephen Denan suggests that DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is considering restarting border wall construction to fill in, quote, gaps. That exists after former President Trump's administration constructed 450 miles of border wall from 2017 to 2020. Uh, according to the report retrieved by Mr. Denan, uh, this was an internal memo that Mr. Ma that Alejandro Mayorkas sent to DHS employees uh, saying, quote, that leaves room to make decisions, end quote, with regards to finishing the wall on finishing, quote, some gaps in the wall. This came after, of course, Biden initially signed several executive orders demanding the, the halting of the construction of the border wall. But that, of course, led to a number of problems with the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, announcing that it was going to investigate this decision and argue that it actually might have been unlawful for Biden to announce the stopping of the construction of the border wall because it would end up costing the government more money to stop than to just keep going, especially after multiple contracts had already been handed out for various companies to provide the material and whatnot for building of the wall. And this, of course, uh, I know it's obviously very, it's backhanded that Biden is considering doing this, but I still can't help but find this to be just so hysterical that the left and all those who voted for Biden thinking he was going to reverse what Trump was going to do, all oh, that evil, racist, sexist border wall that Trump is building, it's terrible and we've got to stop it. And Biden is going to be the guy to stop it. And now here we are. Some people even thought that he might tear it down. And yet here we are. This is just... This is absolutely hysterical. There was this one tweet uh, by Tim Young on Twitter, at Tim Runs His Mouth, breaking, the Biden administration will resume building the wall that Trump started. You know, the one they called racist, inhumane, etc. And some other verified guy named Jose J. Ruiz replied to him saying, quote, breaking, 
Trump did not start building the wall. It's been there for many years. Oh, the coping. That that is that is peak coping from the left right now who can't stand the fact that Biden is completely going back on many of the things he promised he would do whether it was the student loan cancellation and now the border wall. And I will I say again, however forced it is for Biden to do this, if as long as that wall gets finished, man, I'm a happy man because that was President Trump's signature domestic achievement. Uh, for those of you who weren't uh, up to date on the numbers, by the way, for an overview of the border wall and its progress and whatnot, because uh, some people on the hard right and culture <clears throat> love to bash President Trump, say, oh, he didn't finish building the wall. He sucks. He's a terrible president who deserves to lose. We, we, a lot of us know people like this. I definitely have encountered far too many people like this. For those people who don't understand how logic works, there are 1,954 miles of borderland complete between the United States and Mexico. When Obama took office, there were approximately 580 miles of, quote, barriers. So this included, of course, some wall along the heavily populated areas like uh, San Diego, for example, California. But a lot of these were just rickety little ground-level fences that could easily be hopped right over. You take one look at it and think, that's our border? Are you kidding me? But that, that was a big problem that President Trump pointed out. Under Obama, about 100 more miles were constructed. Trump's plan was to replace any and all of this inadequate fencing with wall, slated wall that was anywhere from 18 to 30 feet high. And you've seen all the images. It was these massive, long metal poles that formed these uh, these sort of great-looking designs that some, again, on the hard right criticized and said, oh, that's just a fence. It's not really a wall. Well, okay, this is after Border Patrol and other uh, immigration enforcement uh, officials and executives took one look at the situation and said, yeah, a, a flat, straight concrete wall is not the answer. You know, like all the memes of like the Great Wall of China or whatever. A flat concrete wall is no good because then you can't see what's going on, on the other side. This this slate design allowed border agents to see what is going on on the other side. Right. You with, don't see them until they're pouring over like at the Alamo. Exactly. Exactly. So President Trump promised to build anywhere from uh, 700 to 750 miles with a completed border wall leaving about 500 and 600 miles Technically unwalled, but that would be mostly in uh, the state of Texas, which has the majority of the border, where uh, there's privately owned land. And also, as it has been said, natural barriers, like really steep mountain ranges or rivers or things where it's, of course, impractical to build a wall along that, but also those serve as natural detriments. That President Trump actually did accomplish this goal. He managed to build 450 total miles of wall during his first term. Which means had he been given a second term, which, again, I do think he won, but it was stolen from him, he would have completed the wall by the end of his second term. So he did what he said he was going to do. So Ann Coulter and all those people who complain like that, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, they argue they're, they're not wrong that all about 80 to 85 percent of what Trump constructed was replacement of former fencing or former walls. But when you look at what he replaced, you've got sometimes basically it looks like a bunch of sawhorses, you know, guarding the border that anyone could just pick up and move out of the way or just you know, bulldoze through. So the idea that he was supposed to start from scratch and all of his wall was supposed to be brand new and just ignore the fact that you had large swaths of Arizona and New Mexico where there was fencing or a technical barrier that was easily run over is is just ignorant. Exactly. So realistically, and again, as we said before, the Biden administration is facing pressure that it would be easier to just finish the wall, to just suck it up and finish the wall rather than stop construction and waste even more money. Realistically, they would only need to build about an additional 600 to 700 miles of new wall, as it were, which very well may happen, honestly. And again, I don't think certainly if their grand scheme is still to get millions of illegals flowing over here 
to be new voters of the Democratic Party. They don't care about a wall. They'll still just have a great big wide open gate through all those illegals to come through. They'll just build the wall because it's cheaper at this point. I think it is funny, though, that this is another silver lining to Biden being in office, that he, that Trump, of course, was totally a freak occurrence in American politics in that, if nothing else, of course, he was an outsider, all these other things. He was a, polit a political figure. I don't want to call him a politician, but a political figure who actually did everything that he said he was going to do. He literally fulfilled all of his promises. The ones he couldn't actually fulfill were because he was blocked by judges or in some cases, his own Republican Party in Congress refusing to work with him. But he did everything that he said he was going to do to the best of his ability that he could do it. With Biden, we are now back to the norm, which is politicians who say one thing on the campaign trail and then do literally the exact opposite. And honestly, I'm just glad that it is a Democrat in this case. If it were a Republican getting elected off of Trump's coattails in, say, 2028 after two terms and then saying, oh, I'm going to be the next Trump. I'm going to keep the MAGA agenda going. And then he proceeds to be just another rhino corporate neocon Republican and not do anything. That would be much worse for us. It'd be more detrimental and it would boost the left. Here, when it's a politician in power is a Democrat not keeping their promises, it's better for us. And like I said, like the coping you see on Twitter, like from that tweet I just read, the leftists who just, they already know that they got screwed over voting for Biden, thinking that they were going to get uh, kind of a Bernie light. But instead, they're getting just another neoliberal establishment politician, which is why I actually said before, I've said before on this podcast, if I had known Trump was going to have the election stolen from him and I could at least choose who would beat him, I'd between Biden and Bernie, I would rather have Bernie. At this point, I don't know. Actually, maybe it is for the better that Biden won, because, again, you know, Bernie would um, energize the left space just like Trump energized the right space. And Bernie, too, I think, would have actually done a lot of the things he said he was going to do. Some of them wouldn't get passed because even Democrats in Congress might not want to work with him on some of his more radical ideas. But he would absolutely uh, he would have been the closest thing at this point that the left would have for their own Trump. And who knows? He might even if he had gotten elected, he might actually have proceeded with tearing down the wall. Screw the costs. He would have torn that torn the wall down anyway, just to fulfill his promises. So as usual on the right, there's going to be a little bit of uh, celebrating over this. But unfortunately, as we see so often, many in the establishment right or so-called conservatives, the arguments that they use to support conservative positions are basically leftist arguments. They start from they, they pretty much want to arrive at conservative solutions. But the problems that they want to try to solve with those conservative solutions are the same problems that leftists think are problems. So as an example, Brett Stevens, the New York Times in-house conservative, wrote an op-ed entitled, He read, this came out today, he, uh, entitled, Joe Biden should finish the wall on the border. The, he says, the most harrowing story I've read in the New York Times in recent days was Miriam Jordan's account of a car crash last month in Southern California. Many of you may have read about this. It's about, there's this Ford expedition that came across from Mexico. Um, it went through a breach in the border wall. It was crammed with 25 people and it um, hit a tractor trailer rig on Highway 115, 110 miles east of San Diego. So he writes, uh, it's quoting Jordan, says, a few of the survivors have been able to describe what happened next. The crunch of metal and glass, the bodies flung dozens of feet across the pavement. Twelve people died on the spot at a 13th and a 13th at a nearby hospital. And the argument he makes is that we need a wall because it'll stop people from coming from flooding the border and hitting these gaps and risking their lives and potentially dying. OK, that's obviously a reason why we want the border wall, because it'll stop people coming from Central America and potentially getting killed, whether uh, by other migrants or getting hit by a tractor, you know, trying to run, uh, trying to run through a border wall and make it into the United States before border security spots them. But that's not the only reason why we support a border wall. We support a border wall because many of those people who are trying to breach the border wall are potential murderers and rapists, which is the reason one of the reasons why Trump initially supported building a border wall. Remember his famous quote, Mexico isn't sending us our best people? Well, it's because many of the people who come here 
are in fact criminals. They are in fact at the very bottom rungs of, of the societies in Central America. And many of them are a danger to our people. So in all through Brett Stevens' article, at no point does he ever in, you know, indicate that he is at all concerned about Americans or the impact that this has on American workers. It's all about the negative impact that this has on Central Americans. So he's essentially arguing we should complete the border wall or Biden should complete the border wall because doing so will help Central Americans. And he goes on talking about, uh, he says, the conclusion I've come to uh, reluctantly and not because I've abandoned my disgust with Donald Trump. Walls are ugly things, symbols of defensive, suspicious, often closed-minded civilizations. Walls are invariably permeable. Whatever else a border wall will do, it will not seal off America from unwanted visitors or undocumented workers, roughly half of whom arrive legally and overstay their visas. And this is another argument that anti-wall proponents make. They'll argue, well, half of you know, half of illegal immigrants here aren't here because they snuck across the Mexican border. They're here because they overstayed their visas, which is true. But that doesn't negate the fact that we still have, you know, half of these illegals coming most mostly through the Mexican border. So you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can fill the loop. You can find ways to get these people who have overstayed their visas out of the country. And you can also build a border wall and stop people from sneaking in illegally just because you know, all of the illegals here didn't come from Mexico and sneak across the border doesn't mean that we don't need to fix that problem. But of course, he's using the leftist argument because he himself is probably, you know, writing for the New York Times. I guess you can't really be a real conservative and write for the New York Times. He's trying to maintain his position as the in-house conservative. He continues, Walls also cannot address the root cause of our immigration crisis, which stems from a combination of social collapse south of the border and the pool of American life north of it. But a well-built wall should still be a central part of an overhaul of an overall immigration fix. It's an imperfect but functional deterrent against the most reckless forms of border crossing. So we need to stop people from being reckless and crossing the border, build a nice big wall, and then create a big open gate that they can walk through without injuring themselves. He writes, it's a better it's better against sudden future surges of mass migration, which is true. Okay, so here's here's where it gets really interesting. He says it's also a political bargaining chip to be traded for a path to citizenship and a comprehensive immigration reform bill. And it's a prophylactic against the next populist revolt, which is sure to overtake our politics if the Biden administration cannot completely control an elementary function of government. And he goes on about how this could potentially turn into our our refugee crisis that Germany and Europe experienced in 2015, which uh, provoked the rise of right wing populist parties. And he talks about this like this is a bad thing. Like if you're a conservative, why would you be against the rise of right wing populist parties? I mean, which is worse, a right-wing populist party or the Democratic Party? Apparently, to Brett Stevens, the Democratic Party is preferable to a right-wing populist party, which, look, if you're on the right, if you're a conservative, I can understand you not liking right-wing populist parties. They tend not to be very intellectually driven. Many of the people in it are just people who are angry, and they'll forget about their anger once their bellies are full. They don't answer to corporate donors or special interests. Right, right. But that, I mean, besides that, there are practical reasons why a conservative wouldn't necessarily like right-wing populist parties. But if you're a conservative, you're going to take a right-wing populist party any day of the week over a left-of-center or a far-left progressive party, which is what the Democratic Party is today. Uh, apparently, Brett Stevens, which is why I argue Brett Stevens isn't an actual conservative. He's basically a left of center Republican. He, he's just one step away from being like a Jennifer Rubin type. You know, any of these token conservatives at left wing publications who are just one bad day away from deciding, OK, I'm basically a leftist now and um, a, a Republican in name only like a Lincoln Project type. So one like a literal 
Republicans in name only, who literally just support Democrats in every left-wing cause, abortion, gay marriage. They just suddenly continue to claim they're Republicans because they get more clout by saying, I'm a Republican who doesn't like Donald Trump. Correct. And the argument that we need to do something about the border, we need to complete the border wall because if we don't get a hold of this immigration situation, it's going to cause the right wing of the country to harden. That's the argument that a lot of leftists make whenever it comes to issues like this. They'll argue like whenever BLM was rioting, you would have these wine sipping upper middle class white women that would go out there and say, stop, stop, stop breaking windows. You're going to cause Trump to be reelected. You know, <laughs> forget about the business owners. Forget about the people who could, whose eyes could be put out by shattered glass. No, no, no. That, that's not important. What's important is if you keep doing this, it's going to be bad optics and Donald Trump is going to get reelected. And that's all that's all that matters. So, I mean, if Trump isn't in office and isn't up for reelection, I guess the argument would be stop doing this. You're going to cause Joe Biden not to get reelected if it was during a Democratic administration. And this was actually the only reason why a lot of Democrats opposed the Ferguson riots under Obama's because they felt that it was going to hurt. I guess at the time this was in Obama's second term. Yep. They were afraid it was going to hurt. Hillary Clinton's chances of being—wait a minute, was that—that that was 2014, wasn't it? It was 2014, so it did— it, They were afraid I mean, it was going to hurt them in the midterms. They were afraid it was going to hurt the Democratic Party in the midterms, which right. it did. It did, it absolutely did. And it, it was felt even in uh, Missouri after the fact that, um, of course, in 2016, it was it was already a going pretty solidly red at that point. Like, Romney did win in, in 2012, but then in 2016, Trump still won the state, but his margin of victory over Hillary was over double what— Romney's margin of victory over Obama was in that same state in 2012. Oh yeah, massive increase. Yeah, it definitely turned Missouri from lean red to solid red. But this is this is the only this is the argument that you'll hear. Like if there's riots going on or if there's a border crisis, they'll argue we need to take care of it because if we don't, then it's going to cause right wing populism to become powerful in this country. They don't actually care about the human lives who are impacted by this. And if they do, they care about the foreign human lives. They don't care anything about American human life, you know, American lives that are impacted. So Brett Stevens makes three arguments. He argues that we should build the border. We should complete the border wall because it'll protect Central Americans who are trying to sneak across our borders. We should complete the border wall because it will keep right wing populism at bay. And we should complete the border wall because we can use it as a bargaining chip to create a path to citizenship for current illegal immigrants who are already in the nation. So, I mean, I, I want the border wall completed Regardless, like that, I, I want it completed. But the fact of the matter, you know, when this is our, th- this is why the country is in the position that it is, and th- this is what we're going to get into in our future topic, because people, intellect, right wing intellectuals like Brett Stevens aren't actually on the right, and they're not arguing for positions that the majority of Americans feel, and they actually look suspiciously at the masses of Americans. This is why the right in this country is at, is in such a disadvantage. There are no centers of power in the heartland that can compete with New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And when people who are conservative intellectuals want to gain respectability, they go to these four cities to do their, to do their writing, to do their, uh, you know, to do their pontificating about American life, American social and po- cultural and political life. And then they end up getting jobs at the New York Times in which they have to be very, very careful because if Brett Stevens steps out of line, I don't know if he actually believes this or if he's just being optical, but if he steps out of line, they'll just get rid of him. They'll bring somebody else in who will make these same cucked arguments, which this is this is why conservatives who think that they're going to work their way up through the institutions and change the institutions. The time to do that would have been back in the 1960s and 70s. Not in the 2020s. You're not going to do that in the 2020s. The only way that you're going to actually influence the country is by going bypassing these institutions and creating rival newspapers, rival news outlets that can, you know, reach out across the aisle and get independents to read them. And and that's that's one thing. That's why I mentioned I brought up Newsweek a few weeks ago. 
Now, they're really the only mainstream outlet now that is read by Democrats and left-leaning independents that will actually cover stories that make the left look bad or make the right look good. Which uh, And sometimes Politico will even do this. Even though it's solidly on the left, Politico will sometimes break it like they broke the story on uh, Hunter Biden recently about, the, about his, uh, his legal troubles. So, but they're very, these are few and far between, and uh, most of them, even the, the so-called conservatives, they take the argument. They basically use leftists. They say that the problems in the country are the same problems that the left claims are problems, and then they argue that the way to fix these leftist problems are to come to conservative solutions. So we want amnesty for illegals, so let's build a border wall and trade that for amnesty. Which is just it's it's disgusting. I mean, we need a border wall because it'll protect Americans, not because it'll protect Central Americans, and not so we can give amnesty to people who have broken our laws. Yeah. I'm not sure even what's more disgusting then is the fact that they care more about illegals than about Americans, or when they turn around and pretend to care about other minorities that they obviously couldn't care less about. They just need them for cheap political points, like the ongoing campaign of. Hashtag stop Asian hate, the latest absolute conspiracy theory, this myth that, oh, now I guess Asians are the number one targeted oppressed group in the United States. And that won't stop them, even though I, I think it's still it's struggling to catch on, but they are not going to stop trying to create little instances that supposedly confirm, like anecdotal evidence that confirms this this so-called trend. So, Jacob, what's the latest on uh, what's the latest hate crime against an Asian uh, in America today? There's this uh, Asian American woman in Texas doesn't say what part of Asia she's descended from or how long her ancestors have been in the country. For all we know, she could her ancestry could go back 200 years. But it says an Asian American woman in Texas is demanding answers from Chick-fil-A after the chain printed China on a recent receipt instead of her name, Tina. Last week, Tina ordered from the drive through of a Houston restaurant, telling Business Insider. So Business Insider was the one that broke the story. That she enunciated her name while wearing a face mask. The customer claims an employee with whom she spoke face-to-face jotted down her name in the chain's iPad ordering system and that she scanned her Chick-fil-A app, which also lists her name, while placing the order. However, when she was handed the bill, she was shocked to find they wrote China instead. And so she took this to Business Insider and claimed that they're discriminating against her. This is a bigoted Chick-fil-A employee who saw the way she looked, I guess, behind her face mask. I mean, exactly. What, what is like, she? What is she implying here that this this person was able to look at her eyes and tell that she was from Asia? I mean, the kind of kind of subtle no, implication. Not from Asia, from China. Yeah, specifically from China. And then, uh, yeah. So this uh, this employee allegedly saw her eyes, I guess, behind her face mask, and guessed, oh, she looks like she's from China. I'm going to write down China so that they'll know that this is the this person who looks like she's from China or made this order. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody in their right mind is going to do that. That would be. Like, nobody would even think about doing that. This is this is the thing. Like it, this story is so unbelievable that nobody who actually thinks about it. This is like another Jesse Smollett. That, like one look at this story, common sense will tell you there's no way this is real. <laughs> yeah. So she contacted Chick Fil A and she received the following response via email. Quote, we want our customers to have a great experience, but it sounds like that didn't happen this time. We know we can't undo what happened, but we'd love to, another chance to get it right. I spoke with my team members from the, that shift and they informed me that they misheard Tina as China. And they uh, and that it had nothing to do with your ethnicity. So she was offered a free meal, but she claimed that she didn't care about free stuff and that she would have been satisfied if the restaurant pledged to offer more training and reassure they'll do more. So now basically the mask is off at this point. Uh, no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> but the fact is, this is we now see what she what she really wanted from Chick-fil-A. So. She was offered a free meal, which is what a restaurant does. You know, you have a bad experience. Even if it sounds like you're full of shit, the restaurant will offer you a free meal to make up for it. 
But that's not what she wanted. She didn't want an apology. She didn't want a free meal. She said she wanted the restaurant to pledge to, quote, offer more training and reassure that they'll do more. What does she mean by that? What does she mean, offer more training? So according More indoctrination that white people are bad. Right, right. That's what she wants. Diversity or sensitivity training to all of their white employees. But if the employee had actually admitted, yes, she looked like she's from China, so I wrote China down in the receipt, I shouldn't have done that, yada, 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 it would make sense for her to say, even if she, you know, her being an obvious leftist, say, okay, I want them to do diversity training, but that's not what happened. According to Chick-fil-A, the employee simply misunderstood her name, thought right. that she said China instead of Tina and wrote down C-H-I-N-A. So it's a misunderstanding. It, there is no malice on the part of it. So what good would more training do? Uh, I mean, I guess maybe put hearing aids in hearing the aids. employees. Or, uh, or maybe here's an idea. Stop wearing masks so people can hear you clearly. That's that's an, that. Hey, that might actually work, especially since they're outdoors while they're taking these orders to the drive through. She could just lower her mask and said Tina, T-I-N-A. That's but, one thing that drives me insane. There, there's a I just on a brief tangent here on that note. There's a mall I walk through to go uh, to and from work every single day. And there's a food court. And one of them is a Panda Express. And I go there every now and then because, you know, I, I like some good uh, orange chicken and chow mein. And the, uh, there's two signs, like, printed off on pieces of paper taped to each other. One says, you know, you must wear a mask when ordering, you know, be safe and healthy, blah, blah, blah. And then right below it is another sign that says, speak up. It's hard to hear when you're wearing a mask. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is, I, I, I just can't. This, it's clown world, but that's, that's what we've come to expect at this point, and especially in the case of this story. Yeah, so she told Business Insider that uh, given that given the recent, she said, quote, given the recent rise in Asian hate crimes, discrimination against the Asian community, and especially with Chick-fil-A being headquartered in Atlanta where the recent shooting took place, I would hope that Chick-fil-A would take this seriously. Well, oh, so, she, so now she's connecting it to the Atlanta yeah, shooting? Yeah, now she's connecting like, to the serious? Atlanta shooting. So this is, at this point, it's obvious that this is a clear setup. This person... No Probably norm- a college student, if I had to take a wild guess. Like, this is not some middle-aged Asian mother. This is definitely, like, some 20-something-year-old. Uh, well, if, if this person, even, of course, if this person, we don't even know if this person exists, but if this person actually exists and this actually happened, I'm, I'm picturing maybe a 40-, 45-year-old leftist activist who went and did this. Uh, she, Business Insider might, might have even had advanced knowledge that this was, that she, and this might, have not, might not have even been her first Chick-fil-A. She might have gone to five or six Chick-fil-A's before finally getting a Chick-fil-A employee who would mishear her name Tina and write down China. Or it's very possible that she even spelled out C-H-I-N-A to the employee so the employee would write that down, and then she could claim that she told them that it was Tina and they purposely put down China because she looks like she's from China. There's no way, I mean, in fact, this employee, she, there's probably uh, just beside themselves, like, no, she told me it's China. She told me, see, she spelled it out, C-H-I-N-A. And, and of course, it's obvious, I mean, Chick-fil-A is, is a very, very weak company. They're going to bend the knee to whatever leftist mob, whatever the leftist mob wants. I mean, their own CEO washed the feet of the rapper Lecrae to try to show his... On live TV. Yeah, on live TV and a church to show his deference to Black Lives Matter. Atoning for the sins of the white race. And that was the moment I decided I'm done with Chick-fil-A. Yeah, screw Chick-fil-A. Supposedly based Chick-fil-A that closed on Sunday, so it's a Christian company. No, 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 not after that. I mean, this was after they had already pulled their donation from the Salvation Army because allegedly the Salvation Army is problematic to leftists, uh, the pro alphabet people left us. But the the thing is, that if Chick-fil-A even thought for an instance that this employee had put down China because of the way this lady looked, they would have fired her immediately. But it's very obvious that this employee had a really good explanation for why they misheard her name. 
And I mean, knowing Chick-fil-A, how they are, how, how ridiculously uh, cucked this, this company is, it would not surprise me if this woman actually spelled out C-H-I-N-A to this employee. So just so the employee would get it wrong and she would have something to complain about, uh, you know, hoping that she could force Chick-fil-A to indoctrinate its white employees. And like you said, she's, yeah, she's tying it to the Atlanta shooting. And if this was a simple matter of her being offended because she felt like they were singling her out, she wouldn't have tied it to the Atlanta shooting. She wouldn't have tied it to the alleged rise in Asian hate crime, anti-Asian hate crimes, which are carried out by mostly black people. Uh, she wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't have singled out Chick-fil-A. And, uh, you know, she mentions that they're headquartered in Atlanta. This is in Houston. Chick-fil-A is is a franchise. These local operators, they live in these communities. It's not operated from the top down. So the owner and operator of this particular Chick-fil-A in Houston, he doesn't really have any connection with the headquarters in Atlanta. So, the, you know, like I understand your boycott of Chick-fil-A. I don't like I've, I haven't eaten a Chick-fil-A just because I work there and I'm just not a big fan of their food. But like these local owners and operators, they don't really have anything, any say in what the headquarters of Chick-fil-A does. And the headquarters of Chick-fil-A, they don't really have any say so in how the local operators run things. They just make sure the quality is up to standards and they basically leave them alone to run their store. So for this lady to tie it into the Atlanta shooting, it's it's very obvious that the media and this is what Trump meant by the media being the enemy of the people. The media works with activists who have prejudices and uh, presuppositions about the majority of Americans, specifically white Americans and what white Americans think about non-white people. And they will craft news stories to try to feed into that narrative. And this is what we're going to see in our featured story today, how the news media, they play on this narrative that most white people are anti are, are racist against anyone that isn't white and that we need to educate young white people from starting whenever they're toddlers to teach them not to be white supremacists because the only way you're going to do that is by indoctrinating future generations of white people to not think like this and it really is very similar to maoist marxism in which they believe they needed to train the younger generation, indoctrinate them not to think in a capitalist hat, not to have a capitalist mindset, to completely remove all the ancient Chinese traditions and indoctrinate them into the new way, into the new, into Maoism. I don't think the people at Chick-fil-A really have really caught on. I like this person, they wrote two emails to this lady, which in my opinion, like once I saw, once she refused the gift card or the free meal, I think I would have caught on to it and like, okay, this is very obviously a setup. I'm not going to respond to this person anymore. I'm done with it. But I think so many white people are so naive about the news media and the fact that the news media is actively anti-white and is trying their best to frame all white people as being bigots, all white people as being white supremacists. That they Rednecks and like just Bible thumpers. And right. All that basically a caricature of the way most white people were 100 years ago. That's how the news media wants to characterize all white people in America. And I, I think so many white people are just so naive. They don't follow much the news much. They don't really keep up with the trends. They just basically live in their own little comfortable bubble that they don't catch on to this stuff. And they just walk right into traps like this without even thinking about it. And then they're they're surprised whenever they face blow a blowback. And they, they feel like, OK, well, I, because I'm white, I got to walk on eggshells to make sure I don't offend anybody. But it's not about people being sensitive. This isn't about people having, you know, being quickly offended. This is about a very coordinated, well-funded agenda to basically blood libel white people uh, for any kind of crime that's committed against non-white people. And what you said earlier, too, is that uh, in relation to our featured topic, which we're about to get to here, is that they do work hand in hand with these corporations. That a story like this where it, it's, it shows how 
two-faced they really are that, you know, these activist types will go after corporations that don't bend the knee immediately or those in this case that don't bend the knee sufficiently enough. But then they do depend on these corporations to carry on their agenda. And this is one more way in which the right more collectively beyond just white people, but the right has been so naive up to this point that only now they're finally starting to break the conditioning is that for the longest time, as I said before, I talked about this in the solo episode I did, episode 10, that the right has just been deferential to capitalism and to corporations and the free market, as it were, because that was what we needed for 50 years to be the opposite of the communists in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, that they never could acknowledge that corporations did anything wrong. They can't acknowledge, oh, corporations could become a problem. And yet now here we are where these woke corporations absolutely are a problem. They are just as big of a problem as the federal government, whether it's big tech censoring the sitting president of the United States or all these retailers or airlines or in this case sports organizations boycotting an entire state because they don't like its voter integrity laws because they know these voter integrity laws are going to stop the voter fraud gravy train and they don't like that. This is one more bit of conditioning that the right has to break, and it is starting to break, and I think for the better, that we have to take on these out-of-control corporations, which have led us into a situation of which I call corporate fascism. And that is the topic we are going to hear for the main topic of today's episode, kind of building off of what we have hinted at before, that of course, Georgia passed a law to strengthen its election process and crack down on voter fraud. The major provisions in this bill passed by both houses of the legislature and signed into law by Governor Kemp, obviously trying to redeem himself for failing to protect the election in 2020. It reduces the number of ballot drop boxes throughout the state and limits their exact physical locations to polling places only while they are open. It requires the big one. It requires photo ID to be submitted when you apply for a mail-in ballot. And it reduces the length of time for runoff elections from nine weeks to just four weeks after a general election, among other things. So it's a very good bill. It's a great start. A handful of other states like Texas and Arizona are starting to follow suit with similar measures. And of course, the left has freaked out. The left has gone nuts over this bill because they know this is going to put that voter fraud gravy train to a stop and could very well see Georgia flip back red in 2024 and, of course, prevent Stacey Abrams from, from becoming governor in 2022. So all these corporations are going after them. And the big one that kind of spearheaded this is the MLB, Major League Baseball. Their all-star game was going to be held in Georgia, I believe in Atlanta. They decided that they were going to boycott this new law by pulling the game out of Atlanta and moving it to Denver, Colorado. And, of course, there have been other corporations that have spoken out, uh, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, and a few others. Delta, in particular, was hilarious. The CEO there, Ed Bastian, described the law as, quote, unacceptable in an internal memo to employees that was leaked to the media. So, subsequently, the Georgia House of Representatives, like, almost immediately passed a bill to revoke a major tax break for Delta Airlines, which was just awesome. I'm like, that. that's the kind of swift pushback that we need to see from Republicans. Other efforts, for example, Republican senators in the United States Senate— are actually actively launching an effort to end MLB's antitrust exemption. Again, that's in the actual U.S. Senate, so I doubt that that will pass because, of course, Democrats have control there. And even former President Trump issued a statement calling for the boycott of the MLB and other, quote, woke corporations. So we're seeing quite a few Republicans who are kind of getting on board with these ideas and are starting to actively finally push back against these corporations. But we honestly, I think we can agree, you and I, Jacob, can agree that a lot more needs to be done. These are good first steps, but a lot more, even more radical actions need to be done to stop these corporations and really begin to mark any semblance of a turning of the tide if we're going to get these corporations under control before we can even begin to fight back against the broader institutional challenges we have. So what are some ideas you have, Jacob? Well, one thing that they could do uh, to go if they want to take a 
you know, let's take this a step further, is they could pass, they could give the governor authorization to do targeted eminent domain. And he Ooh, would, now that's a spicy suggestion. Yeah, I mean, what, what he could do is any employee of, of the MLB who owns property in Georgia, he could simply confiscate that property under eminent domain. The legislature, of course, would need to empower the governor to do this. And it can be for it can be for cultural purposes. You can say, well, the the state of Georgia needs this property for cultural reasons, and uh, or even for uh, for public reasons. They can seize the property, evict the people who work for MLB, and if if they live there, which most of them, if they live there, it's probably like a summer home. They don't even need the house anyway. So I would I would seize that property. I would sell the property and use the proceeds to give UBI to the citizens of Georgia. Everyone you start out with the the poorest people in Georgia. So say everyone who makes less than thirty thousand dollars a year and is employed did file taxes last year, they will get a monthly one thousand dollar check or five. Start out however low you need to five hundred dollar check. And as you seize more and more property from these corporate execs and these corporate managers who live in Georgia or have property in Georgia, and you start auctioning this property off, the more the state coffers will fill. And this is one thing that a lot of people argue. Well, if that are against UBI, uh, universal basic income, they'll say, well, where's the money going to come from? And it, UBI is extremely expensive. And, of course, the Bernie Sanders types would say, well, we'll just take it from the billionaires, just tax billionaires, which I'm in favor of, these billionaires. So someone who – because these people are – the MLB is effectively interfering with democracy. They are attacking a state's democracy. The, these people, these legislators, were duly elected by the voters of Georgia. They were duly elected to pass laws in favor of the voters of Georgia. So for a corporation to hurt the economy and boycott an economy, basically pass sanctions, economic sanctions on a state for doing what its voters elected them to do. Because in a democracy, if a state legislator, if a state legislature passes a law that the voters don't like, they can go to the polls and vote those legislators out in two years. That's why state legislators are up for election every two years. The same with Congress people. Every two years, you have elections. If they pass a law that you disagree with, the voters can rally and throw them out of office and elect new people the next election cycle. It's not up to corporations to decide we don't like, you know, what kind of laws they like and dislike. And essentially, because they're not attacking, they're not boycotting the, leg- the Georgia government. They're not holding a gun to the head of Georgia, the Georgia government saying you need to repeal this law. They're holding a gun to the people of Georgia. They are attacking the citizens of Georgia since the majority of the citizens of Georgia elected these people to the state legislature to pass laws for them. That's what a democratic republic, that's the way a democratic republic is supposed to work. But by attacking a state economically like the MLB is doing and some of these other are subtly threatening to do, they are interfering with democracy. They are essentially saying we don't agree with having a democracy. We don't agree with our system of government. So they're essentially saying we want a government that is imposed by nonprofits, NGOs, activists, and corporations, and basically enforced by corporations, because this is what's happening. You've got activists who are ideologically driven, who rally and put pressure on corporations, and then corporations put pressure on state governments. So the corporations are just doing the dirty work. They're just doing whatever the activists are demanding that they do. This is not democracy. This is mob rule, which is when we think of mob rule, like, okay, well, does the mob make up the majority? No, the mob very seldom makes up the majority of the citizens. Most citizens are just working, going about their daily lives. They want to live in a country where they can vote every two years, go to the polls, cast their ballot and forget about it and just go live their life and not have to think about politics nonstop. They're not most people aren't activists. But if Georgia is serious, Brian Kemp is serious about securing democracy in Georgia he needs to take actions that will hurt the MLB in their pocketbook, specifically target individuals. Because think about it. What does our government do when we have bad foreign actors 
What do we do to those foreign actors or have countries that are acting in ways that we disagree with? What do we do to punish those countries? We put them on watch lists, put them under surveillance, level sanctions against them. But we don't level sanctions against the countries themselves. That's kind of impossible to do. What do, what do those sanctions do specifically? Who do they target? They usually target the leaders of the countries. They target the leaders, and in some, time, some instances, they target oligarchs. So like with Russia, most of the sanctions that we pass on Russia, they're targeted against oligarchs. We will freeze assets that those oligarchs hold in the United States. We will stop those oligarchs from traveling to the United States. This is the way the state of Georgia needs to treat the oligarchs in Major League Baseball. Any person, any major employee, any, any executive with MLB who owns property in the state of Georgia, the state of Georgia needs to empower the governor to seize that property under eminent domain, they then auction the property off to the highest bidder. They use the, uh, the proceeds to get, to pass UBI and give a monthly check to the poorest Georgians. Because what corporations are doing essentially is they're saying, they're arguing, okay, people in Georgia like baseball. People in Georgia don't like politics. So we have the upper hand. All we have to do is threaten to pull out, pull our game out of Georgia, and it'll cause Georgians to revolt against their government because they care more about baseball than they care about politics. And they will turn against their their elected officials if they see that it's going to hurt their ability to attend the All-Star game. But the way you counteract that is you just give people free money. You say, okay, well, people like polit- people might like baseball more than they like politics, but they also like getting a check from the government more than they like baseball. So we're going to seize the property. And look, I would go as far as to tell Truist Park the, the Truist SunTrust Bank owns, I guess they became Truist Bank, who now owns the new baseball stadium that's north of Atlanta. I would even go so far as to say if we don't get a reversal or at least uh, at least compensation for all of the economic loss that losing the All-Star game is going to cause. Estimated to be up to $100 million. Yeah, I would say, OK, well, we're going to use the imminent we're going to claim imminent domain over this ballpark and the state of Georgia is going to seize this ballpark. And from now on, all ticket sales are going straight into the state coffers. All to all restaurant sales go. We're just basically essentially going to nationalize the state for if you want to consider the state a nation. We're going to nationalize this ballpark. We're going to nationalize all of the restaurants that are on this property. All of the condos that are surrounded. If, if you've ever been to the stadium, it's surrounded by very high upscale condos that rent anywhere from a thousand to eighteen hundred a month, which in Georgia is very high. It's not that high around D.C., but in Georgia, that is extremely high. So I would say, all right, we're going to confiscate all of these condos that are on this property. All of the hotels, we're going to take over all the hotels and the state of Georgia is going to run all of this stuff and all the revenue that we make. We're basically going to put all these employees on the payroll of the Georgia state government. All of the revenue that that the stadium and these restaurants and these hotels take in, all of the rent that these tenants pay, it's going to go straight into the Georgia General Fund. And from there, it's going to be distributed to anyone making less than $50,000 a year who has a job and they will receive a monthly check that's UBI, and we will continue to do this as long as the MLB refuses to bend the knee and apologize, or at least reimburse us for the amount of money that we would. In fact, I would double it just for good measure, just to teach a lesson to the MLB and other major corporations. Why that, not? They've got money to spare. Exactly. I would say, okay, well, we lost about $100 million in revenue from the loss of this All-Star game. So after we seize Truist Park, after we seize all of your assets, including in the assets that belong to individuals. So like if you work for MLB and you have a farm in Georgia, the state of Georgia should seize that under eminent domain, kick you out of your house, put your family on the street and sell that farm. 
And then all of the revenue that comes from this, whether it's from rents, whether it's from the sale of property, all of this will go to the people. It will be distributed through universal basic income. And we're just going to keep doing this until we get a settlement. And we would say, I would say, okay, without going to court, so no court fees, just tell the MLB, if you want this to stop, if you want this property to be restored or you want to be reimbursed for the property that we took, we expect you to write a check for $400 million to the state of Georgia and to apologize publicly and to promise never to do this again. And then we'll call it quits and we'll go back to normal. This is this is what it's going to take. Some people may think, well, Gary, that's that's communism. Well, which would you prefer? Would you prefer the government? I mean, basically, we don't have any control over the MLB. This is the thing people need to understand between the state government and corporations. This is something that libertarians can't seem to get through their thick skulls. Not even once. They don't even try to understand it. No, especially the ANCAPs, like anarcho-capitalists. They think oh. that if we could just completely get rid of government, then society would be all peachy because then private individuals would run things. Well, no, We'd all just have our own private weed farms and defend our 17-year-old spouses with rocket launchers. You know, that, that's what the world of libertarian <laughs> we'd all, and We'd all have a tank in our backyard that could, to protect ourselves from the neighbors. But what would happen is you would have a gang-run world. You would have corporations who would essentially run things. They would be our overlords. They would be the ones we'd have to pay taxes to. You would essentially have a situation that we have in Central America where cartels run everything. I, I remember I talked to this, this guy from El Salvador recently. He said that back in his hometown, if you go to the store... You don't. The store doesn't pay taxes to the government. The store pays taxes to the gang that runs the neighborhood. The roads they're kept up by the gang. All any charity, it's it goes through the gang. The gang literally runs everything. They are the government. That is anarcho-capitalism. And so, if you know people that are skeptical of the government using eminent domain or using punitive eminent domain, which is something that I completely support. I believe. Look, if you elect people to to your government, you expect them to serve you, the people. You don't expect them to serve the corporations. And when corporations, the corporations are basically coming in and flexing their muscles and showing the people of Georgia that they are more powerful than Georgians' elected representatives. Exactly. What you have essentially is the absolute worst of both worlds. We already know that we have an overreaching federal government with their bureaucracy and all of their institutions they have at their disposal, but you also have out of control corporations that have completely bastardized the idea of the free market economy. You know, this. This is still, yes, it is still technically a capitalist system, but this is not a free market by any means. This is not even really crony capitalism where certain corporations just get kind of bailouts from the government and in return they get a, a couple of executives appointed to cabinet positions, which happens all the time. This is even worse. This, again, is corporate fascism. This is where the companies are just as powerful as the federal government and they know it and they are using that power. So all we have left, the only institution the right really has left at their disposal right now for the time being are the state governments. Whether it's Georgia, whether it's Florida, whether it's Texas, they should use it. And Ron DeSantis has been using it pretty well thus far. Kemp has no excuse. And I know, he again, he's trying to redeem himself. He's got a re-election coming up. He's facing a possible primary challenge. There's a lot that he can do between now and mid-2022 to prove that he is not the absolute spineless cuck that he was last November. And on that note, too, uh, I'm totally just spitballing here, Jacob, but let me know what you think of this idea. What about in regards to other companies? We've obviously covered the MLB, which is the big one. They really spearheaded this whole movement. Uh, like I said, Coca-Cola issued a statement, you know, basically condemning this new law. And a whole bunch of other companies have spoken out against this, Salesforce and so many others. What if in the case of, say, Coke, that one way of punishing the company would be to pass some kind of a law to increase uh, sales tax on 
only Coke products, like obviously bottles of Coca-Cola and other things that they sell that are specifically Coke products, so that an average consumer pays a little bit more money just because they are purchasing something Coke-related. So subsequently, that is a little bit more money. That It's a state tax that would go to the state government of Georgia. And at the same time, you now present Coke with a dilemma. Do they take the brunt of giving, basically indirectly giving more money to the state of Georgia that they don't like? Or do they try to save money by pulling all their business out of Georgia? Which either way, it's a win. It's kind of a win-win situation for Georgians because if Coca-Cola pulled out of Georgia, imagine how the healthcare costs in Georgia would just plummet. (laughs) (laughs) Coca-Cola kills more people than cigarettes probably overall if you added it up, especially since Americans have largely stopped smoking compared to what we used to do. So yeah, Coke is actually probably more deadly than cigarettes. So if they pulled out of Georgia, that'd be that'd be just fine. That'd be that'd be that'd be more than happy. I mean, if they stopped selling their products altogether and went bankrupt, that would be great for Americans. Yeah, and I know it's a crazy suggestion because of course tax raising taxes is just taboo for the GOP. That's just the one thing that has remained consistent even through the Trump years. You know, the never Trumpers who they may have changed their opinions on gay marriage or whatever, but that's one thing the GOP it's their kryptonite. The idea of raising taxes of any kind, they simply exist for the purpose of cutting taxes. But this is a case where raising taxes is not only beneficial to the state, but it also sends a message to these corporations that either they will back down or pay a financial loss for that or subsequently choose to avoid that financial loss by pulling their business out which will also incur more losses and i don't think we have uh, i don't i'm not sure if that would be constitutional but i think it would be like if you only targeted coca-cola because we don't have a corporate bill of rights in this country thankfully not so so corporations can't necessarily sue and claim discrimination um i mean maybe they could as as individuals they could claim that they're being i know chick-fil-a uh uh, what was it san antonio had banned chick-fil-a from the airport right they sued and they managed to get back in so some colleges have done that so yeah that probably wouldn't work on a constitutional level but you you don't you could just get around it by uh taxing just exuberantly taxing all soft drinks and it would, it would fall on all soft drinks. Which, so pull a Michael Bloomberg, basically? Yeah, just pull just pull a Mark, uh, Michael Bloomberg and tell Coke, like, whenever you start behaving and acting like a good company, like a good corporation, and stop acting like a quasi-government, then uh, we might think about taking this off. Although I will say one more way in which this could very well, you make a good point that this could possibly be unconstitutional, but I would counter that with one measure that has been taken by some Republican governors already, certainly in both uh, Florida and Texas as two examples, that Republican governors have taken steps against the uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which basically just says, oh, Israel is a, is a racist country and it's built on oppression of the poor Palestinians who did nothing wrong. And they basically said, yeah, we will not do business with corporations and companies that support BDS. So certain, those laws have held up under a court of law, multiple courts of law, I do believe, up to this point. So if, under that same logic, we could possibly see similar uh, tax increases on Coke products using similar logic. So potentially, but that's just that's just one more idea. But d- if we want to try to understand where this is coming from, we need to think about why this is happening. Why are these corporations all coalescing around the political left? Why are they deciding that they are basically going to play God in government and tell states what they can and cannot pass in their legislatures? So think about let's go back. Let's go back about a decade or two decades. What were one of the major criticisms that boomers made about millennials 10, 15 years ago? They were in college. Remember, most millennials at this time, they were in college. They, they were inexperienced. They, were they inexperienced. hadn't been through the real world yet. Pick yourselves up by your bootstraps. Stop being lazy. Exactly. It was, it was a, this was a major criticism of millennials, that they were, they were dumb. They were a bunch of social activists. They were, cared more about the planet than they cared about people. You know, all this stuff. But what they weren't taking into account that you, you're not going to slow down time. You're not going to stop time. Eventually... 
these millennials are going to graduate college. And then they're going to get into the real world. And I think the boomer thinking behind this was that when these millennials get into the real world, they're going to find that if they don't change their ways, they're not going to be able to get a job and make a living. They weren't taking into account the fact that, yeah, while a lot of them are left-wing activists, a lot of them are extremely spoiled, rotten, they are gaining skills while they're in college. And they are eventually, especially since most of them aren't getting married and starting families, they are eventually going to take over corporations. Like boomers aren't going to be around forever. Eventually they're going to retire. They're eventually going to move out of the workforce. And when they move out of the workforce, they are going to be replaced by Gen X, who is going to be replaced by millennials. Well, we have reached the point where the older millennials are in their late 30s. The first millennials were born, I believe it was 1983. I believe that was the mid 80s, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like, I think Gen X was like 64 to 60 or 64 to 82. So like 83, 84 is when the millennials started. So you got to remember these people, they're pushing 40, the older millennials. So they have now moved into the corporate world. They're now running many aspects of corporate America or they're about to take over. And a lot of the Gen Xers are feeling the pressure. And so, you know, I think it was, it really was a, a, big mistake in hubris and arrogance on the part of boomers 15 years ago rather than taking this threat seriously they just dismissed it out of hand they're like okay well when these kids hit the real world they're going to be they're going to be faced with a reality shock when in reality they were never faced with that reality shock they moved into corporate america they did what they needed to do they moved up and now they're running this show and so this is something that we've got to take into account when we're talking when we're dealing with corporations you're not dealing with a traditional corporation you're dealing with activists who have liberal arts degrees many of them and in those liberal arts classes they were indoctrinated about a certain vision of America so let's let's think about it for a second if you run a company that's that is based in California and they have offices in Atlanta what is your let's say you're a 38 year old you graduated some you know 15 odd years ago with oh, you took a bunch of liberal arts classes. What were you taught in history about the state of Georgia? Uh, that it was heavy on segregation, on Jim Crow. It was a racist state, something along those lines. So, do you think that black people in Georgia have representation in their state government, or much representation? If you're this 38 year old CEO of a company or a manager or you know well, someone that's high up in a company that's based in Silicon Valley, do you think that Black Georgians have much of a voice in their state government? Oh, of course I don't think that, and that's why I it's upon me as a C, as a good woke CEO to help them get that representation exactly. and be their savior. Exactly. So like going back to what I was saying earlier, I was saying how you know they're not declaring war on the state government; they're declaring war on its citizens because citizens can just vote the people out in two years. These people literally believe that black Georgians don't have the ability to vote their legislators out in two years if they don't like what they're passing. So they see this voter, they see this voting rights law, which it actually expands vote. If you go into the details, it actually expands voting in some instances. I think it gives um, like it expands it to sun, to Saturdays. I'd have to go back through it, but it does. There are some provisions that even people on the left, like I read a, an article in Vox, and they admitted that some aspects of this law actually make voting more accessible. But if you don't read the the article and you just hear activists saying that this is trying to disenfranchise black people, you're going to believe them because you were taught in school that white people in Georgia hate black people. They're racist and they will try to disenfranchise white people at every, every given opportunity. So if people are saying these activist groups are saying this is what's happening, you're just going to take their word for it. You're not even going to bother reading the law. You're going to be like, OK, well, I'm going to use my corporate power 
and my uh, multi-million dollar company or my billion dollar company to tell Georgia that you're either going to repeal this law or I'm going to pull out of Georgia and cost your state jobs, or we're going to put pressure on the MLB to pull out of Georgia if you don't change this law. So you've got to understand that whenever you have a liberal arts education system that indoctrinates people against other sections of the nation and teaches them that certain people in this country think a certain way about other races of people, they're going to carry those beliefs into the companies that they eventually run. So this is another aspect that the right needs to get a handle on. That is the liberal arts indoctrination, the propaganda that passes for curriculum in the liberal arts colleges on American America's universities. So if you're a Georgia representative, you need to take a hard look at what the liberal arts classes at your universities, your state-funded universities, are teaching young Georgians. Because if they're teaching young Georgians that Georgia is a racist state and that Georgia's ancestors were horrible, horrible people, they're going to produce young Georgians that are actually going to be fine with this law. Because I guarantee you there's a lot of young Georgia Democrats that look at this and they're like, hey, I'm glad that the MLB is punishing us because we deserve it because we're a racist state. Exactly. This is the thinking behind. This is what this is what leftist liberal arts classes produce. And this idea that boomer conservatives have had for so many years that, well, eventually they'll get into the real world and they'll have to take they'll have to understand that this isn't how the real world works. That was true for a while, but it's not true anymore. That was true before the tech revolution. Nowadays, you don't have to go through you don't have to work your way up in a company to have a good middle class life. You can go out there and you can make one hundred thousand dollars in a year without you know just having soft skills, that, you know, just make one hundred thousand dollars in a year. Use that money, invest it, start your own company. and You're a millionaire in three years. And not to mention you'll be surrounded by people who reaffirm your beliefs because they're in the same boat as you. Exactly. So this is something that this is a blind spot with a lot of boomer conservatives. They were thinking that, well, these people are going to have to work their way up. They're going to have to show deference to their elders once they hit corporate America. No, they, they become corporate America. America, and now their elders are having to show deference to them because they were too stuck in the past. They weren't paying attention to the tech revolution. But uh, yeah, this is this is another big, big step that the state that Republican state legislators need to look at. And that is the universities. You should not have state funds go into a university that dishonors that state or the people of that state. Or, in, or commits libel against its residents. Quite frankly, exactly. This is what this is what these universities are doing. They're committing libel against the residents, and the residents are paying for it. Taxpayers are paying for this stuff. People look at the universities like, wow, these universities are pushing out such you know ridiculous theories and ridiculous students. You're paying for that. You paid tuition for your child to go to that college. That tuition is paying the salary of this leftist professor that you're complaining about. So this is something that it's like the cognitive dissonance you paid for your child to go to college and that money that you paid is funding the destruction of your country. If you actually cared about what these universities were teaching, you would not have paid tuition for your student to go to college. You would have found a different route. Or if anything else, you would at least be knocking down the door of your state legislator and telling them to do something about these universities. Private universities can obviously teach whatever they want. They also charge higher tuition. So if you want to pay a premium to be indoctrinated in leftist indoctrination, that's your prerogative. State universities should be should exist and receive taxpayer funding simply to educate the future workforce. They should not be in the business of libeling the people, the parent, basically the parents of the students they're teaching. And this is what universities do. They libel the parents of the very students they're teaching and turn these students against their parents and their grandparents. Just like in the Soviet Union, you know, you convince the kid that it is worth more, you know, social credit points or whatever to turn on your own family for the sake of the party or the government or whatever the idol is here. And again, it's like you said before, 
people, a lot of people just want to be able to vote every four years, two years, four years, six years, and then go about their daily lives and not care about politics. But the left has made politics into their religion. We've said that before. And they are just absolutely fanatically devoted to it. So they have to make politics their entire lives. Ergo, they have to make politics everybody's life. And this was, of course, boosted by the fact that Trump came along and naturally generated way more interest in politics than anybody else before. But they now are hoping to kind of capture that and keep that same sentiment going to keep politics at the forefront of everybody's thinking. And ultimately, this is uh, these are just a few suggestions, of course. So Brian Kemp, if you ever get the chance to listen to this, you should really, really consider these because these would definitely help you out. If at the very least you want to, because again, that bill already was a great first step to curtailing the voter fraud efforts that they were going to put in place to try to get Stacey Abrams elected over you. But now you've got his biggest problem, honestly, is facing a primary challenger. A Republican is now in a much better position to win in the state of Georgia in 2022 and for Trump or whoever runs in 24 to win it that year. But he's still got to beat, Kemp still has to beat a challenger. And he's looking at possible challengers from Vernon Jones to maybe Doug Collins to so many other great Republicans. There's a lot of great potential Republican players in Georgia. So Can you if, imagine if Vernon Jones ran for, as a Republican. That would be <laughs> that would be the greatest. That would be fantastic. Uh, that would be absolutely legendary. Former Democrat and not only outspoken, you know, black conservative, but one of the funniest politicians. Yeah, he's absolutely hilarious. Riot. And and you make a good point about how he is in a good position to win re-election, or a Republican is in a good position to win re-election. The voting irregularity that we saw in Georgia. This bill really addresses it. This is, I mean, if you look at the details of the bill, it's a really good bill. It takes, it eliminates the possibility that people could could give food and water in place of votes or could campaign while people are standing in line. This is one of the complaints they made that people are, they're outlawing giving water to people who are standing in line. Well, basically what people were doing is they were you know, wearing campaign attire and they were going handing out food and water and trying to convince voters to vote for their candidates which is called electioneering which is which illegal is illegal so that that's that they made that you know that, that aspect illegal they also shortened early voting they require photo id for absentee ballots and this is another thing people were saying people, this is one thing republicans wanted them to do was to compare signatures they're saying if you compare signatures with the absentee that ballots you're going to find out that there was a lot of fraud which is true but can you imagine if you're a poll worker and you've got to look over signatures, you got to look at uh, some scribbling compared to other scribbling and try to find out if it matches or not? Nobody signs their name the same way every time anyway. It's much, much easier for them to I just – include. Yeah. So it's much, much easier for them to just include a copy of their photo ID with a state-issued photo ID and boom, you don't have to look at signatures. So they, they, met, they de-emphasize signatures or get rid of it altogether and the photo ID is one of the biggest aspects of it. But th- it's a really good bill. It's a fantastic bill and a lot of the issues that oh, – one of the biggest issues is if there are voting irregularities, it removes the Secretary of State from being like the king of electioneering, which is one of the things that Raffensperger well, – so Raffensperger or no other Secretary of State will ever be in the position that he was in. So this is – they now have an election board – that is, there'll be one from each party, and then the others are elected by the state legislature, which is the way it should be. Very, you know, there's checks and balances, very democratically controlled, and it gives the state government the opportunity and the ability to take over local elections if there is the potential of fraud or if there are irregularities. So, if you have these democratic strongholds in Atlanta that are that seem to be committing fraud, the state legislature can step in. This board can step in and say, "Nope, we're taking over. We're going to now run this thing." So this is it's actually a fantastic bill and it does set the stage to put Georgia back in not only put into play but to swing it back into as a Republican state. And that's why the left can't stand it because that they could only have done what they did in Georgia 
with voter fraud. They're stealing the two Senate seats, stealing the presidential election. And again, they were going to use that to finish the deal, you know, finish the, the quadruple effect and have Stacey Abrams elected as governor and probably see Democrats elected at all the other statewide levels as well. But this just completely threw a monkey wrench into that plan. And that, uh, this, of course, is a very natural transition for me to remind you guys that uh, that content, a, a lot of what we talked about right there, re explicit references to the voter fraud, which, yes, did happen in 2020. Those will have to be cut from our YouTube version of this video. But we will still be posting the this on YouTube as well without those segments. So be sure to follow us, subscribe on YouTube, and give our videos a like there. In addition to the full uncensored videos, which are posted on BitChute and Rumble. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thanks for tuning in to episode 15, and we will talk to you guys next week.